Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihera Zozan. And I'm Khalil Bendib. Since December 28th, Iran has been shaken by a wave of protests expanding to far-flung corners of the country, from Mashhad, the second largest city in Iran, to Shahin Shar in Isfahan province, to Bukan in the northwestern region of the country. These protests have surprised many. And the question that has recurred over and over again is how did it all begin and why are people angry? Who are these people who up to recently had been invisible to the rest of society and to the Western media? This week we discuss the deep-seated political and economic grievances driving the discontent of the Iranian people. And especially the tens of millions who are struggling to make ends meet. We will also talk about the many years of localized protests by workers, environmentalists, teachers, women's rights activists, pensioners, and other disenfranchised sectors of Iranian society. Shahra Magamir spoke with Aran Kishavarzian, Associate Professor of Middle Eastern Studies at NYU, and asked him why the protests have spread to so many different cities in Iran. About a week ago, on December 28th, this current round or wave of protests developed all across Iran. One, I think, important issue to keep in mind is to, in part, disentangle the origins of this wave of protests from the underlying causes. By that, I mean, you know, the origins of these protests could be, you know, dated to December 28th, and they are very much situated in very specific concerns about the rising costs of, of essential goods, such as eggs, bread, gasoline, and the very real prospects that the upcoming budget will make important cuts in the cash payment program that Iran has created, uh, created a few years ago to distribute resources directly to people in terms of cash payments. So it seems that these were the very real issues that galvanized people initially in the streets of Mashhad. But it also is increasingly clear that uh, these were the issues that a group of conservative anti-Rohani clerics and politicians in Mashhad, in the city of Mashhad, either tacitly or even directly used to encourage people to take to the streets last week and chant slogans against the Rouhani administration to criticize their handling of the economy and so on and so forth. However, this anti-Rouhani kind of set of motivations that may have triggered these protests in Mashhad and maybe in the city of Qom and so on and so forth, really tapped into some very real raw grievances, a sense of despair and even anger that was felt by important segments of Iranian uh, society And uh, this led to this kind of wave of protests where by today, a week later, we have uh, something in the order of 60, 70 different cities and towns across the country that have uh, witnessed um, relatively large gatherings with very intense confrontations between the security forces and these protesters with very diverse slogans being articulated, both critiquing the economic condition, but also directly calling for the dismantling of the state, the regime, uh, criticizing the Islamic Republic, criticizing clerics, criticizing the security apparatus, 
and even openly calling for the downfall of the leader, the supreme leader, Ali Khamenei. So the real challenge is that we have is to unpack and make sense of the factors that led this kind of initial set of protests that may have had you know, direct links to kind of factional politics in Iran, how they took on a kind of life of their own and were intersected with deep social and economic currents within contemporary Iranian society. How would you characterize the current unrest in Iran? Unlike, say, the Green Movement in 2009 that was uh, directly uh, responding to a strong belief that the election results were manipulated and the handling of the elections violated basic uh, civil and political rights, or even the 1999 set of protests emanating from the universities in Tehran that were tied to uh, the rights of political prisoners, the rights of university uh, students, freedom of speech, and so on and so forth. These protests, I think, are, are best understood as basically what sometimes political scientists call bread riots, or maybe more broadly understood as kind of movements for social justice. And this doesn't mean that they are merely or simply economic grievances, or the demands are simply economic, but it's in fact, uh, these social justice movements are really actually touching at, a, at the intersection between economic injustice and inequalities and political decision-making and lack of accountability on the part of decision-makers and the state. And once we start thinking of these protests of the past uh, week as you know, a social justice kind of movement or cries for social justice, I think it opens up important ways to think about these protests by linking them to larger historical trends. More immediately, the 10, 15 years of consistent, although isolated, protests by workers, by nurses, by teachers protests demanding uh, attention to environmental degradation, protests regarding the uh, kind of Ponzi schemes and the financial corruption and the bankruptcy of banks, protests around the criminalization of border traders or what are sometimes called porters, mostly Kurdish uh, men who carry extremely heavy loads on their back across the mountain uh, ranges that separate Iran from Turkey and, and, and Iraq and how they, in recent years, they have, many of them have been killed um, in clashes with border police. And in a sense, their, their act of just basic economic survival has been and criminalized. So what we've seen in these past 10 to 15 years is uh, different segments of Iranian society mobilizing to both demand the government act responsibly, uh, respond to their demands for social justice, basic social welfare, but also in the case of, say, industrial workers or teachers or nurses, demanded that they would they be allowed to have independent, autonomous associations to represent their wishes and their will. So uh, what we see, for instance, on the part of bus drivers or, again, teachers and nurses is both a demand for pay and better work conditions, both a demand to have uh, long-term contracts rather than these short-term contracts, but also a demand to have their associational voices recognized and viewed by the government as the legitimate kind of voice and representation of these segments of these workers and so forth. So for me, protests of this past week are informed by and directly kind of outgrowths of years of isolated protests, dissent in all parts of, of Iran and not just Tehran. So just as we've seen this week where a lot of these protests have happened outside of the capital city and even outside of the major cities, such as 
Tabriz or Shiraz or Esfahan or Mashhad. Uh, they've occurred in smaller towns or townships outside of the cities. Many of these protests uh, that I'm describing, for instance, against uh, banks who have closed up shop and, and, and cases of embezzlement and so forth, they've happened in relatively small small towns. And, and these protests, in a sense, are building on this, this more recent history. If I can, though, but let me point to another way that these protests, if we think of these protests as social justice, allows us to think in historical terms. And that is actually to go back and think about the 1979 revolution. One of the core pillars of the revolution, uh, one of the factors that united secularists as well as Islamists, people on the left as well as nationalists, was a strong belief that the Pahlavi's form of modernization and development fundamentally excluded significant segments of Iranian society in the 1960s and 70s. And on the eve of the revolution, there was a strong agreement within large parts of the opposition that this process of modernization had left many, many people behind. These were people that were marginalized and had very few avenues of participation in politics and in the ability to actually benefit from the large sums of oil revenue that were flowing into the Iranian economy in the 60s and 70s. And in a sense, the revolution itself and the immediate aftermath, and also related to this was the war effort, was grounded in a, in a sort of social contract, which argued that the new revolution, the new order, that this new Islamic Republic would consciously create new opportunities for upward mobility for these very people that had been excluded from the benefits of so-called modernity and development in the 60s and 70s. So even in the context of the war, uh, there were major developmental initiatives, major institutions that were created that allowed these segments of society that had been, had been excluded from the centers of power, the centers of economic and social status, were given opportunities to, in a sense, work their way up um, the social ladder, whether it was by finding employment in the, the expanding uh, state in the 1980s, whether it was by joining the Revolutionary Guard Corps, whether it was by entering the variety of universities that were created in not only in Tehran, but also in the smaller cities, or uh, whether it was for many women uh, gaining access to education, literacy, uh, healthcare and developing a greater sense of autonomy and a power within the household, within the community, and in some cases, even within the polity. This was, in a sense, a social contract that paid you know, serious attention to, to issues of social justice. Now, it's absolutely true that there were other exclusions, religious minorities, secular people, leftists, Many other groups were excluded while others were included in, in this new polity. And secondly, it's definitely true that since, I would say, the end of the war and since the, the 1990s, this social contract has become less viable. And in a sense, the political leaders have chipped away at the promises they had made. And in a sense, these various protests that I alluded to earlier and the current wave that we've seen this past week is a direct response against the political establishment's unwillingness to uphold its end of the bargain, to provide those avenues of participation, that basic social welfare, to address deep inequalities within the economy. And to be clear, um, this social contract was also as a result of uh, 
the fact that this course that was dominant at the time, perhaps, or that was very influential, was socialist discourse. The Islamists who took over power were, were sort of in a position to have to go by that mandate. No, that's a very good point. So, I mean, what we oftentimes just simply call political Islam or Islamicism obviously comes in various uh, gradations and variations and intersects with other political ideas. And what is striking and notable, as you just pointed out, is that in the 1980s, whether they were clerics or lay Islamists in Iran, either actually believed in it or were pushed to address issues of social injustice, inequality, class politics, in part because of the strength of the left in Iran, in part because of the continued existence of the Soviet Union in the 1980s, and in part because of popular actions by ordinary Iranians, both during the revolution in 1977, 1978, but also immediately after the revolution with continued forms of resistance, whether it was taking over factories or uh, squatting and taking over land, but various ways of demanding or making claims upon resources, national resources, and arguing that it has to be distributed evenly and and so forth. Uh, I think here, to open up another issue, the war, the war effort was was quite critical in allowing Iranians, uh, in some cases veterans, in some cases uh, women who were left as uh, heads of households, to continue to push the demands of the state to provide for its citizens. Here, in this case, some cases, it would be viewed as citizens who are veterans, citizens who are sacrificing for the nation, for the war effort, and, and so forth. So uh, the war became a vehicle uh, to create new institutions and mechanisms for some degree uh, of distribution uh, of wealth. And, and to address basic poverty, at least in the, in the 1980s and you know, 1990s. Iran actually witnessed major protests in the aftermath of the 2009 elections. Some of the cities engulfed in the current unrest are not major metropolitan areas, as you mentioned earlier. And these cities were not flashpoints during the 2009 turmoil. How do you compare the current unrest and the protests to the ones in 2009? I think you mentioned something about that. But what are the differences and similarities? Why is it taking place in these cities as opposed to uh, the ones that witnessed the 2009 protest? This is the challenging question for all of us who care about Iranians and the plight and lives of Iranians to, to really think through. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, other than these video clips, the, the protests themselves are largely absent in a lot of the discussion that we see on, in op-eds and on Twitter and, and so on and so forth. But there are some, some clear factors that are, are discernible at this moment. A number of uh, researchers have pointed out that the economic growth and the increase in flow of oil revenue that Iran did experience in the last 12 months, the past year or two, did improve the economic growth rate in Iran and clearly improved uh, the basic conditions of some Iranians. But when we look at this uh, through some of the economic data that we have and people like Javad uh, Salehi Esfahani has looked at or Kayvon Harris has looked at or even BBC Farsi has looked at, there's a clear pattern in which the beneficiaries of this kind of improved post-sanctions or the loosening of sanctions economy have been people in Tehran and the other major cities. Households in the smaller towns outside of Tehran and in the rural areas have not benefited in the past year and a half to two years 
from the negotiations over the, the Iran's nuclear program. This pattern is clear. Not only have the benefits of the loosening of sanctions not uh, been distributed uh, geographically evenly uh, and been concentrated in Tehran, but the Rouhani government over the past five years has implemented budgets that have been austerity budgets, that have in fact cut government spending, developmental spending, and clearly wants to, he wants to make cuts to the cash payments program. All of these factors have led to a highly uneven short-term economic situation in Iran that I think people are feeling, but also preemptively responding to the policies that are being discussed by the Rouhani administration at this moment. But thinking a little bit more long-term, when we look at these smaller cities, these are all cities under a million people, uh, these towns and townships, one other factor comes to mind, and that is it's exactly these small towns that have had the sorts of protests that I was discussing uh, previously, whether they were kind of workers' protests and strikes, or they were protests against environmental degradation. So some of these very same cities that we have become flashpoints in this past week, in the past couple of years, have been flashpoints around issues of, for instance, air pollution, or lack of water, the redirection of rivers and, and riverbeds, or the extreme uh, problems associated with the long-term drought that Iran has faced. So some of these protests are tied to the dire environmental situation in Iran, which has non-man-made causes as well as man-made causes. So on the one hand, are obviously global climate issues that are complicating the life of Iranians. There are regional factors. You know, we can't ignore basically the, the destruction of Iraq, whether it's through sanctions or war that decimated Iraq and has, has deeply affected air quality and access to water in uh, western Iran. The marshlands that were destroyed in Iraq, and that, that was providing buffer. Yeah, leading to... Uh, degradation of air quality in, in most cities in the southwestern part of Iran. And in fact, uh, it's, it's been a major issue. Exactly. If you follow the news, as you probably do, from Ahvaz and Khuzestan province for years now, People have taken to the streets complaining about the air quality, but also complaining about the lack of a response from Tehran or the almost indifference that the government is, has shown towards the plight of people, in this case, major cities, Ahvaz, Abadan, Khoramshah, uh, these places uh, who have been suffering continuously with extremely poor air quality. As I mentioned, some of this is very complicated and difficult for the Iranian government to address, and it, it needs kind of a regional and global response. But some of this uh, is tied to concrete policies that the Islamic Republic has implemented in, in the past few decades, and that is these large capital-intensive mega-projects, dams, agro-businesses, and so forth, that I was alluding to, that have in part are based in a, in a notion that technology and science and engineers can bring prosperity and wealth and allow humans to control the nature. Uh, and in this way, the, the Islamic Republic's attitude towards nature and science is exactly the same as the Pahlavis. But this, these mega projects are not only capital intensive, uh, but they also have other uh, drawbacks. They uh, tend to use enormous quantities of water, uh, leaving very little available for small farmers and so on and so forth, uh, or for drinking water uh, and the such. Um, but also these large projects are very much projects that are top down. Uh, they're planned, designed in Tehran. They're implemented in the provinces with almost no consultation 
and discussion with local communities and citizens to address their concerns and their, their needs. What is ironic or, you know, I would say tragic about this is that many of these planners and deputy ministers and even governmental officials come from provincial backgrounds. So we would expect them to know better. So here, just to mention another scholar who does very interesting work on, on Iran, Kaveh Esani, for a number of years, has been arguing that we have to think of the 1979 revolution and the Islamic Republic as a state, as a provincial revolution and a, a government of people from the provinces. So these are, in fact, are the people that benefited from the new opportunities that the new state created in the 1980s and the 1990s, the issues that I mentioned earlier about the creation of new universities, the expansion of the state. The people that filled these positions oftentimes were the people that were excluded by the previous regime, who came from more rural backgrounds, from provincial backgrounds, were, were not necessarily from old families from Tehran and so on and so forth. But once they gained positions of power, positions of authority, and, and gained technical skills and knowledge, they continued to implement very much the same kind of developmental projects and schemes of the previous regime. Uh, again, large capital-intensive projects that oftentimes led to the displacement of people, moving people from rural areas and villages to some of these small towns and so forth, and led to many of these negative consequences. It should be noted, though, that in these past 10 years, local communities have mobilized to challenge these projects. Uh, these, so this is where these protests and movements kind of emanate, is, is partly local communities trying to mobilize around issues of lack of access to water, uh, lack of access to land, and so forth. Or diversion and, of the water sources, such as the ones we witnessed in Khuzestan area in Ahvaz. Exactly. So people haven't passively accepted these realities. And in recent years, they have developed skills and organizations and knowledge to confront and challenge the central government and critique the use of water, critique the obsession with dams and so forth. Unfortunately, many of these initiatives have remained localized. From what I have seen, that we don't see enough kind of linkages between uh, localities and across issues and so forth, in part because the government doesn't want this, actively tries to discourage this. And in fact, once groups do try to, in a sense, scale up and work across issues and across regions, that's when they feel the, the wrath of the central government. Going back to this group of cities that are witnessing this unrest in this current round of protests, one thing that stands out in the smaller cities, it's both threat and opportunity to uh, be a protester. On the one hand, you know everybody else and they know you, so that poses a security threat to you as a protester. On the other hand, it may make it difficult for the local security forces to quell protest in a brutal manner. A very good point. I absolutely agree with you. What is striking about these protests in these small cities is that you would suspect that these people... These communities are relatively small. People can identify one another. So that would be a naturally a discouragement for people to take to the streets because they can be identified by neighbors and, and fellows and, and, and so forth. So the consequences for taking the streets are quite serious. And we have to acknowledge that. Yeah, it takes quite a bit of courage to do that. Exactly. So we have to acknowledge the enormous courage that people had to take to the streets in these smaller towns, whether it was courage or it was driven by absolute despair and hopelessness. Yeah, uh, so that, that's absolutely uh, true. But I think I, I agree with you. I mean, in 2009, where the protests tended to be centered in these uh, larger cities, there was a degree of anonymity between the Basiji 
or the, a member of the Revolutionary Guard Corps and the people in the streets and the kind of the discourse of, oh, so-and-so is, is anti-revolutionary or is corrupt or is, is even not Iranian was more believable or more meaningful. But in the context of a small town, that Basiji is probably, or that member of the police force is probably a neighbor. So it does pose real challenges for the government of how to secure these spaces and these places. I think that contradiction or that tension at play in these these localities is one to acknowledge and appreciate. That may explain why the state has been deploying security forces from other locations and bringing them to some of these smaller cities in order to quell Um, protests. I haven't come across that, but... There are reports to that effect. Obviously, given the uh, restrictions on circulation of information in Iran, the censorship imposed by the state, it's hard to confirm some of these reports, and it takes time. I see the uh, the logic there. And the other thing that is striking in the pattern of state kind of retaliation to these uh, protests is that unlike 2009, the Revolutionary Guard and the Basij have been less on the front lines than the regular police force, uh, the Nidu and Tizami. And in fact, the IRGC official uh, explicitly stated that they only sent forces to three provinces, Esfahan, Hamadan, and I'm forgetting the third uh, province at this moment. It seemed to me that he was actively trying to tell people that, look, we weren't the ones who were beating up your your sons and daughters. We weren't the ones who were suppressing the, the protesters. And he was trying to keep the security response at, at, at arm's distance. Now, I don't know if that is, in a sense, a tactical ploy, if this is related to kind of learning from the experience of 2009, where the Revolutionary Card Corps were very much on the front line and were deeply criticized for this uh, within and outside of Iran, or if it's at all maybe possibly even related to the, the Guard Corps being overextended, given that it uh, has many of its uh, commanders and forces in Syria. That's true. That's a good point. There has been a wide spectrum of slogans chanted by the protesters, as you mentioned earlier, in over 70 cities over the past seven days. What does that tell us? Also, have we been able to identify the ones that may be more common and more prevalent among protesters at different geographic locations? The diversity of chants and slogans, I think that what tells me is what other people have pointed out is that this is a rather leaderless set of protests, decentralized, disorganized to some extent. So at various points in time, in various places, whatever chant comes to the mind of a particular group, they will articulate it and so forth. So unlike, again, 2009, where there was, at least in the opening week or two, there was a fairly narrow set of demands and chants articulated about elections, the votes, about Mir Hussein Musavi, and so on and so forth. That was a protest movement that was kind of led and directed, at least initially, by the reformist movements and the reformist political organizations. This one doesn't have that sort of organizational factors to direct and choreograph these protests. In terms of what kind of meaning one could extract from these chants and slogans, I hesitate to do over-interpret at this moment. For those of us who have attended protests, whether they are in the United States or Iran or anywhere else, rallies, protests, especially when it's under extreme duress and fear and so on and so forth, they have a kind of life of their own. I'm kind of uncomfortable with some of the over-analysis of some of these chants. 
Yes, we've heard some chants, even on the opening day, that even reference the monarchy and so forth. But to me, to conclude that there's strong support for the return of the monarchy or Reza Shah, I think that's extremely far-fetched. Fair enough, yeah. yeah. That's one point that I think needs to be made. The absences of a certain chants are noteworthy. As far as I've seen, there's been no mention of Mirhosei Musavi or Karubi or the house arrest of the reformists, or basically the demands of the Greek movement. That's been absent completely. That is striking. But also, as far as I've seen, there have been almost no demands or chants regarding issues related to ethnic minorities. And that's striking in part because many of these locations do have significant ethnic and religious minority groups. But as far as I've seen, there's been very little in the way of uh, linking these social justice issues to issues of ethnicity and so forth. You kind of mentioned this, Arang, earlier. As spontaneous as these protests seem to be, as you mentioned, one can argue these protests did not simply materialize overnight. In fact, I wanted to mention that based on the reports that we have received, uh, nine out of ten of these cities that are going through this unrest had experienced one or more protest actions during the six months that led to the current unrest. So that's worth, I think, noting that there is a thread that connects these protests or these sentiments. Arang, the protesters' anger and frustration is visible in the video clips that are being circulated and based on the eyewitness reports that we receive. Also, the slogans, as you mentioned, swiftly became more radical they were no longer just economic demands, as you mentioned. The chants were against the establishment and its political power structure. How do you explain such a quick radicalization, going from economic demands to very radical political demands? I think it's because in the minds of many Iranians, and for that matter, I think many Americans, economics and politics are not actually mutually exclusive. And in the specific case of Iran, the issues of inequality, the issues of lack of jobs, the issue of the bankruptcies in the banking sector, these are intimately tied to the decisions and policies of the government, the mismanagement by the government, the inability of the government to respond to the needs of people, whether it's in the case of the earthquake in Western Iran or these environmental issues that I mentioned. For many people, economic malaise, lack of jobs, inequality are part and parcel of the lack of an accountability, transparency, and responsiveness by this thing that we call the state. Now, the state in the Iranian context is kind of embodied or manifests itself in the clergy or the supreme leader, Ali Khamenei, other wings of it are Rouhani. So for Iranians, you know, when you criticize the economy, you're directly criticizing the state that has enormous amount of revenue, the oil revenue. So we're talking about a particular type of state that Iranians have lived under for many decades now. This is an oil rentier state that has enormous amount of revenue and uses that money to distribute it through society in various ways. And whether it was in 1979 or it is today, people have pointed out that the distribution of these resources by the state is deeply unfair and unjust and is corrupted. This is why probably the most important or central theme of these protests have been corruption. Corruption has been the central factor that in a sense links the economic livelihood of people and the demand for a radical change in the state or in government policy. What does corruption mean in this context? 
few days ago, Mr. Rouhani also remarked that protesters were not just articulating their economic grievances. He said they were also concerned about corruption and lack of transparency. Tell us, what does that mean in the Iranian context and how widespread is the problem? To get your second question first, there are some indicators of measures of corruption that are are quite problematic, but clearly there is significant amounts of corruption. The sanctions imposed on Iran by the international community, especially by the United States, have generated and cemented various forms of monopolies and smuggling rings and transnational alliances and so on and so forth that have exacerbated various forms of corruption and embezzlements and so on and so forth. In the past decade, one could say that corruption has been even more spectacular. And then related to that is that because of this kind of sanctions economy, there's been various forms of speculation that those who do have money, those who do have capital, have invested it not in creating a new factory or a new business, but oftentimes just speculating on imports and exports and so on and so forth. And this has generated a very speculative economy, some people call casino capitalism, where significant and well-positioned figures in the Iranian economy have benefited enormously from this kind of sanctions smuggling economy in these recent years. So for some, corruption is tied to this kind of mafia, the mafia dimensions of the economy. But the other kind of issue that is present in your own question, corruption is not just a language used by ordinary citizens criticizing the government. Corruption is a concept or a term that's used by the political elite of the country. So you have the president of Iran openly talking about members of the government, members of the clergy, shadowy figures who are corrupt, are preventing him from controlling the budget. So he openly talks about corruption. You pick up any reformist newspaper associated with Rouhani or even Khatami, every day there are articles about various types of corruption and mismanagement and so on and so forth. Meanwhile, the conservative hardliners aligned with principally the Supreme Leader Khamenei also for the past five years have used economic issues and specifically issues related to mismanagement and corruption as their one way to bash the Rouhani administration, to criticize his plan to negotiate with the West in order to improve the economy. They continuously argue every day, day after day, in in such outlets as Kahan newspaper that the nuclear negotiations failed because it hasn't provided economic growth and welfare for ordinary Iranians. So the economy and corruption has been a political tool that's been used both by reformists and by the hardliners or the conservatives to criticize one another. So this is a kind of a language that is in circulation in everyday life for all Iranians. What in a sense, what these protesters have been doing this past week is to take the notion of corruption and say, well, you're both corrupt. And it's not just individuals that are corrupt, the whole system is corrupt. That's a powerful move on the part of these protesters to, in a sense, seize a concept or a set of issues that have been used and deployed in kind of factional politics and use it against both groups simultaneously, right? The question this leads us to contemplate is, are there any political actors and organizations that can, in a sense, fill in this political vacuum to try to direct these grievances that we see in the streets towards a new political current within Iran. So if these protesters are leaderless at the moment, there are going to be various groups who are going to jockey to become the leaders of this new 
revised critique of the corrupt nature of the government. If I can make one final point about corruption, sure, that is also kind of missed in some of the recent discussions about the events, is for me, the actual corruption, the mismanagement, the unaccountability of ministries and organizations, the inability of the Iranian government to organize and coordinate the response to the earthquake in November, all of these also point to a sort of hollowing out of the state. If I go back to my earlier point at the beginning of our interview, if my point was that in the 80s and 90s, Iran imperfectly created a state that sought to address some basic principles of uh, social justice, it did this through the creation of various organizations and ministries that under the auspices of the Rafsanjani and the Khatami era, they became kind of technocratic bodies, technocratic organizations, again, very undemocratic, not responsive to ordinary demands and needs of people, but nonetheless professional technocratic organizations. What we had with the, if you want, the Ahmadinejad revolution or the tenure of Ahmadinejad, the eight years he was in power, was a radical critique of this technocratic professional state. And what he did during his tenure, and in part thanks to the international community and the sanctions regime, was to chip away and even destroy important pillars of this technocratic apparatus or the state. So large segments of this professional bureaucratic class were either removed from power or left, in part because this wasn't Ahmadinejad's social base. His social base wasn't state employees and kind of the middle class and the urban middle class. So he actively sought to either disempower these people and these organizations or simply remove them. The most famous case is his attempt to disband the plan and organization Iran's developmental sure. plan and organization body. What Ahmadinejad ultimately did in these eight years, combined with some kind of various neoliberal um, initiatives, was to weaken the essential components of the state that would allow it to be responsive, accountable, effective, and I would argue less corrupt. That's Oran Keshavarzian speaking with Shahram Agamir about the current wave of protests in Iran, which began on December 28th over economic issues in the northern city of Mashhad and has spread quickly across the country to more than 50 cities. At last count, 1,000 people have been arrested, including a number of students activists and 22 people killed. We'll hear more after a break. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa.
Poverty and economic inequality, as you mentioned, has increased in Iran since new liberal restructuring of Iran's economy that began in 1990s, essentially in the aftermath of the war with Iraq. Who has been benefiting from this shift? Who are the major power centers that control Iran's economy today? In general terms, as you and I both of us mentioned earlier, the wealth has been concentrated in Tehran and the larger cities. It has, with the neoliberal turn, the privatization, however haphazard it took place, and the kind of downsizing of certain parts of the state, the beneficiaries were all of those groups and individuals that were well positioned to, in a sense, seize government assets and turn them into private wealth, whether this was companies or factories, whether this was land or what have you. These groups benefited. In some of these cases, these groups, we can think of them as organizations, the segments of the Revolutionary Guard Corps that were involved in construction and economic activities like Khatam al-Anbiya. al-Anbiya, yes. These groups were the beneficiaries of winning contracts to build roads and tunnels and some of these dams and so on and so forth that I mentioned. But it's also important to remember that when these projects, when they won some of these contracts, money them no-bid contracts, many of them were subcontracted out to smaller private enterprises and businesses and so forth. Some of them may have had the similar kind of sociological and ideological leanings of the Revolutionary Guards, but others of them were probably friends and family and acquaintances of you and I, people on the secular left and so forth, who were engineers and had their own workshops and so on and so forth. So those people that were well positioned that were able to take advantage of some of these lucrative contracts, some of these monopolies that I alluded to, were the main beneficiaries. And this led to what we can think of as an expanded middle class, urban, educated, and consumerist. And so what we've seen in the past decade or so is that those who have benefited from this neoliberalism have also been increasingly comfortable in displaying their wealth, displaying their assets, whether it's in large homes and apartments or sports cars, or multiple international trips and holidays. Conspicuous consumption and display of wealth is something that is associated with this economic restructuring that began in the 1990s and continued even under Ahmadinejad, the so-called populist president of Iran. You know, I was just looking at some figures that for an average middle-class family in Iran, it would take, uh, if they save 35% of their income, Every year, it would take them 97 years to be able to buy a house. That's very telling, and that's a middle-class family. And I'm glad you mentioned that, because the one area of the economy that has boomed has been construction, in part because of the type of construction and housing that we've seen in the past couple decades has been high-end luxury apartments, property that's an instrument for investment and accumulation of wealth, not for living and building communities. That's a good point. So let's talk about this. Given the level of censorship and repression in Iran, it's difficult to know the class composition of this protest. In fact, we keep hearing from analysts that we don't know these protesters (laughs) as if they're coming from a different universe or a different planet. Are you able to shed some light on this crucial matter, which is the class composition of the protest? So now we both, in a sense, have been talking about places and, and localities rather than people, the location of these protests rather than the protesters. 
most people are doing is they're looking at where these protests are taking place and surmising that therefore these people are not the middle class, are not university students, are not professionals and so on and so forth. And therefore arguing and concluding that, look, this is a very different class composition than the Green Movement, the 2009 uprising. There's a lot of truth to that. And then the patterns that we've already talked about, the locations, how these locations are had a history of protests around social welfare, environmental, economic issues. Those are all important factors that suggest that this is a, a group of people that have lives that are qualitatively quite different from people that live in Tehran and Tabriz and Eswan and were very active in the reformist era, very active in the Green Movement. Having said that, I've increasingly become a bit wary about this notion that this is an uprising of the working class or the poor. And let me give you a couple examples, reasons why I'm a bit wary of that. Let me first say that, so when we look at the locations of these protests, these protests are taking place, and they did take place in Tehran, for instance, they took place in the exact same spaces and places as in 2009, in basically central or downtown parts of the city, the central parts, the major thoroughfares of the cities. They didn't take part in shanty towns or areas of the poor, communities of the Iranian society living. The abject poor, yes, go ahead. The, abje- the abject poor. They didn't take place in the areas where the abject poor lived. So in some senses, these are different from the protests that Iran witnessed in the early 1990s during the Rafsanjani era, where you had major and quite violent protests in Islam Shah and in some of these extremely poor communities. This is one thing that suggests that Iranians of all walks of life go to you know, the central thoroughfares of their cities and towns. So the locations probably suggest actually a very mixed composition to some of these protests. And various people probably got sucked in or not in various ways. Secondly, look, these are not rural places. Some of these people may have been born in rural parts of of Iran and have moved to these urbanized areas, or they may be children of rural families. But these are people who live urban lives and have urban aspirations. And I would say middle class aspirations. Many of them probably have even college degrees and they have aspirations for a decent job, a secure job that provides salaries that can allow them to live a reasonable life and so on and so forth. So these are not, for instance, to make it more concrete, the people that took to the streets are not the people who are sleeping in the graveyards or sleeping in the open graves. A news item that captured many people's attention this past year uh, was the prevalence of Iranians who had not only did not have a place to live and sleep, but were relegated to sleeping in open graves. I doubt those people are taking to the streets. Simultaneously, I don't think these are the smugglers that traverse the Kurdish mountainous border region that I mentioned earlier. These are not the abject poor. These are not that strata of society, the 14, 20% of Iranians that are under the poverty line. These are people who may be threatened by poverty, And maybe when they see and read about the news about people sleeping in graveyards or seeing children working, living and sleeping on streets, fear that this may happen to them or their children. But they themselves are probably not in that livelihood. Asif Bayat, a wonderful Iranian sociologist, has for years argued 
that whether it's the 1979 revolution or after, when we see major protests, in fact, it's the abject poor are engaged in their own kind of parallel forms of resistance and politics, not these major mass mobilizations. And I suspect this is what has been happening in Iran this past week. Just to be clear, are we referring to this notion of what some people call the middle class poor? So these are the people who live the life of the poor economically, but they are educated with middle class expectations and aspirations. As we witnessed through the uprising in North Africa in 2011, there is an explanation that this group of people would be more willing to participate in collective actions and take initiatives in such protests, such as the one in the current unrest in Iran, mm-hmm. as opposed to the uh, rural migrants or very poor. Some official estimates have it that 35% of the younger people with higher education in Iran are unemployed. I think that's a very good way to put it, that notion of the middle class poor or those people that have the credentials to be middle class. They have the educational background. Their parents may even have the jobs and the background that would entitle them to certain kind of a middle class life, well-being and forms of aspirations. But because of unemployment, because of precarious employment, they simply cannot reproduce the lives of their dreams or even the lives of that their parents were able to fashion for themselves in previous years and previous decades. So this is a deeply frustrated middle class that on the one hand sees that they can't reproduce their aspirations, but also does see that some people in some parts of Iran and some parts of Tehran are in fact doing extremely well and living what seems to be a life of luxury. Let's focus a little more on the urban poor. The official statistical center of Iran has reported that at least 14% of the population lives in tents or sheds, as they call them. I also looked at some figures from three years ago, which indicated the percentage of people using informal dwellings in some large cities. And they were 34% in Mashhad, 31% in Ahwaz, 26% in Iraq, 19% in Hamadan, 15% in Rasht, and 34% in Kermanshah. This is the city which certainly has higher percentage after the earthquake last year. All these cities were involved in the current protest. How well can we claim that we know Iran's urban poor in general and their participation in um, these protests and other types of collective action? In terms of actually our knowledge or research on on the urban poor, there frankly isn't enough, and we don't have enough research. For Westerners, the the sets of questions that are asked have been quite limited and focused on factional politics and the kind of urban elites and political thought and the intelligentsia. So we need a lot more research in general. The sheer numbers are there, right, based on these figures. Sure, the sheer numbers are there. I think they're increasingly or they're very visible to Iranians, as I I mentioned, whether it's in news reports or just walking down the street and seeing increasing numbers of people, even children, who uh, clearly are uh, living in very dire situations. So poverty is more visible to Iranians, just as just as extreme wealth is, uh, is visible. So there's poverty, it's understudied, underappreciated. You take any bus ride or subway ride to various parts of Tehran and the urban poor are quite visible. So these people are clearly there. 
Um, and if you don't want to take the bus ride or the walk, you open a newspaper and there are various ways uh, that the urban poor feature and that plight, the lack of housing, the types of employment and so forth, it's quite there. The, the more challenging or difficult question is that the, the, the protesters today in these streets or these protesters that have been involved over these last years in various localized uh, forms of dissent, are these groups the same? As I suggested, I actually think your formulation of thinking of these protesters as actually being the middle class poor, uh, the people that actually have enough money to put into a bank, uh, but yet have so little money that when that bank uh, goes bankrupt, their whole livelihood is mm. destroyed. Or people that have education, but don't have the right connections, and the job market is such that they can't gain meaningful employment that can cover all of their increasing expenses. So it's this impoverishment of the middle class that I think is driving the protests rather than the abject poor that are, in a sense, they are so poor, they don't even receive the limited social welfare that the government provides. The studies that we have on social welfare in Iran, which is, which is significant and laudable in many ways, but much of the social welfare provisions in Iran are directed actually not to the poor, but to well, you know, the middle class and even the upper middle class. Mm. So the subsidy programs, the healthcare benefits and those things, they actually um, don't go to the poorest segments of Iranian society. So unfortunately, those Iranians, the, the statistics that you just read out, are both, in a sense, absent from the protests, I think, or le relatively absent. Uh, I'm sure there's some that are deeply involved and they're risking their lives about this, but they're relatively absent. But they're also, uh, in a sense, unseen and unimagined by social policy. The measurement of these things gets very complicated you know, what exactly is the, the, the threshold? Right. The main point, though, is that the small towns and rural areas outside of the major me metropolitan areas have a larger percentage of that population mm -hmm. is uh, deeply impoverished. That pattern, you have to grapple with that, with that reality when thinking about why the protests will take place in, in the locations that they are today rather than in Tehran and uh, right. Shiraz and Tabriz uh, and so forth. We have also been hearing slogans, as you mentioned, against the entire ruling bloc and the political elite. Some of the chants are against all factions of the regime, the conservatives, the reformists, as well as the centrists. What are your thoughts on this matter? Does this signal a deep-seated dissatisfaction or disaffection with the reformist faction and possibly a complete break from their agenda? Is this a turning point or is it a watershed moment? I suspect that you're absolutely right that this is a very critical juncture for what we've referred to in past years as the reformist movement. It is clear that these protests are not galvanized by the issues of the Green Movement and uh, Mihosei Musavi. It is also clear that for many members of the intelligentsia and the reformist uh, circles, they were taken completely off guard by these protests. That's why for a number of days, they had very little to say, even after they were kind of prodded to make statements. They didn't make any statements or made very lukewarm statements. And in some cases, even made statements that parroted some of the lines of the hardliners that these protesters were instigated by foreign elements and Saudi Arabia and so on and so forth. So there's a real threat that the reformist movements have discredited themselves by their, both their lack of a response and their kind of highly problematic response in which they basically, in some cases, 
responded in very similar ways as the hardliners. So it almost looks like the regime closed ranks. Rouhani has tried in his public statements, he's tried to walk that very fine line by saying that the protesters have the right to express their grievances and the government should listen to these demands, but also underlying and stressing that violence will not be tolerated, the destruction of property will not be tolerated and so forth. So he's tried to walk this fine line, but the question is, how tenuable is this? Where are the outlets of expression? I mean, there are these groups in one form or the other, they have tried to have rallies, they have tried to have assemblies. A lot of them are not even given authorization to hold these rallies and so forth. Look at International Workers' Day, May 1st. They would not allow them to go out. They would have to assemble inside a stadium. One way to respond to these protests is say, look, there are a lot of grievances out there. There are a lot of different segments in Iranian society. We, the government, are going to recognize this diversity of views and opinions and demands of 80 million Iranian citizens. And we're going to do this by acknowledging and licensing independent associations and organizations, issuing licenses for rallies and gatherings and so on and so forth. That way, whether you want to call it cynically and say it was co-opt these protesters or legitimate them, however you want to think of it, this would be a very reasonable response. Sure. And to be fair, some members of the reformist bloc have made statements like this. Even a very interesting member of the parliament on Twitter argued for legalizing independent workers' associations and so forth. So that's a very reasonable response. But given that the Islamic Republic and many segments of the Islamic Republic are unwilling to share power and have been unwilling to tolerate dissent, it seems very unlikely that the current elite will make these sorts of gestures to institutionalize avenues of participation. It seems very unlikely that will happen. You know, you raise the reformists, which is a very, it's important to think about them. They obviously are a partner with uh, Rouhani and the current government, but uh, we just passed the 20th anniversary of Khatami's election and the emergence of the reformist movement in the late 1990s. So I think we're in a good position to evaluate uh, the strengths and weaknesses, uh, the contributions and the limitations of the reformist movement at this moment after two decades. And, you know, on the one hand, we can say that they have been important for Iranian society and Iranian politics because they've introduced and emphasized a, a kind of vocabulary, a discourse about citizenship, about participation and transparency. And all of these concepts and notions actually fit in and, and even inform the, the demands of the protesters today in the streets of Iran, the call for the end to corruption, the call for meaningful participation, and the call for social rights and so forth. So the reformist agenda actually can be compatible with the demands today in some ways. And the reformists also demonstrated that they have you know, very good tactics and methods to ensure large electoral participation and ensure that their candidates can uh, win elections. Been beating the hard line. Whenever the out election out participation rates go up, reformist-oriented candidates win. And in the case of Rouhani, he owns, owes his presidency in part due to this alliance with, with the reformists. So these are the strengths of the reformists. However, throughout these 20 years, they've never really shown any serious interest in organizing at the level of the working class uh, and uh, various working class communities. 
they've been, you know, frankly, just merely interested in engaging with these communities and these people as potential voters, voters to they could bring out once every four years for elections to cast a vote for them, uh, hopefully. And when they were out of office during the Ahmadinejad years, we have very little evidence that they really engaged in any kind of serious self-critique or re-evaluation of their economic policies and agendas. And in fact, so the reformists, if they or frankly any other political actor does not develop social roots that would allow for communication with various branches and segments of Iran's lower classes, the working classes, these groups and these parties will never earn the trust of these communities and today's protesters. And if that doesn't happen, we won't have an Iranian political system that will be democratic in any meaningful way. The only way to develop a meaningful democracy, and I would call it you know, a social democracy, is for these political organizations, whether it's the reformists or any other groups that emerge in the coming years, to actually take the diversity of Iranians and their demands and their, their aspirations seriously and, and actually listen to them and respond to them. The other complicating factor to think about is that Iran is at a moment of transition, right? It's clear that the supreme leader is eventually going to have to step down, be replaced, and it's going to happen sometime soon. It is also clear that this whole generation is gradually no longer going to lead this regime. Rafsanjani passed away recently. It is also the second term for Rouhani. So this is his last term in office. So these next few years are years of transition. Partly what I think is complicating things for the political elite is if they do stick their neck out and take a strong position, they may ultimately be sidelined and in a sense have no role and no position during this moment of transition. I mentioned Ahmadinejad a couple of times to go back to Ahmadinejad. What is interesting about Ahmadinejad is here's someone who was president for eight years, from what we understood was a, the darling of the Supreme Leader and the Revolutionary Guard Corps, at least in those opening few years, who has been, in a sense, shunted aside by the regime, mm -hmm. who was not allowed to run in the previous election, yet has in these past several months, through various forms of social media and so forth, has been continuously mocking the Supreme Leader, trying to claim the voice of the disinherited, talking about the corruption of the judiciary, the corruption of the Larijani brothers, and so forth. So he's actually tried to become this independent voice. And, you know, we have to acknowledge that he had, uh, did have a social base that allowed him to defeat Rafsanjani for his first term in office. And he did, whatever happened in the 2009 elections, he did have a significant number of votes and he did have a social base. So he's, in the margins, has tried to cultivate a social base of his own. But in this week, he's actually been completely silent. Now, it's hard to know why and so on and so forth. But I suspect one issue that's crossing his mind as well as others is that this is a very risky time to actually try to carve out a radical position. Because if you do, you could be simply eradicated and you won't be able to be a player during this transitional stage and moment. One thing to look for is, will Rouhani, in a sense, be the pragmatic moderate that he is and try to make piecemeal kind of measures to keep himself relevant as a player and somehow patch together some semblance of a coalition within society, 
or will he actually try to engage with and broaden his social base? But in doing that, he's going to have to actually confront and challenge some of the basic authoritarian pillars of the Islamic Republic that very well could lead to him paying a very serious price. In a sense, Khatami has paid the price by being completely shunted aside officially. And in the comments or lack of comments this past week, he may have lost his social standing as well. So, Arang, since we brought the concept of class, I would say, back to the heart of our discussion and the heart of this unrest in Iran today, and you talked about the new liberal structure adjustments that began after the war with Iraq ended in 1988, and this has been ongoing irrespectively of who controls different branches of the government or the different branches of the state. And Mr. Rouhani doesn't seem to be an exception to this trend, as you mentioned, Improving the business environment was the key economic point in Mr. Rouhani's program when he was running for the presidency. And this was five years ago and hasn't changed. Basically, improving the conditions of the new liberal capitalism that's been uh, governing the Iranian economy. The issue of social justice is essentially ignored, as you mentioned. Is there a reason for these protesters to believe that any of these factions within the establishments may have plans? to address the grievances of subaltern classes and groups. Six months ago, the Ministry of Roads and Urban Development admitted that the figure of people living under the poverty line was 33%. That's not abject poverty. And some economists, such as Hussein Rahfar, have argued that this is as high as 40%. Do you see any potential within the ruling bloc, in spite of different factions and so forth, that they have either the capacity or the will to meet these demands? At this moment, I'm quite pessimistic, both given the issues that I've talked about just now about the complicated transitional moment that Iran is going through and the tendency of the Iranian elites to be overly pragmatic and overly cautious. So that doesn't bode well. But also, as I mentioned earlier, even if they do have the will, you know, from what we've seen in terms of the ineffective response to environmental and seismic shocks and so on and so forth. At this uh, juncture, I'm I'm quite pessimistic that the Iranian establishment has the will or capacity to implement the necessary reforms that are required to, in a sense, reconstitute a new social contract where it can engage the diversity of its uh, citizens who have very different needs, very different demands, and take them quite seriously. I I don't think the state has the machinery to do this. Society, while it is mobilized and deeply politicized at this moment, because the state doesn't recognize independent associational voices, society isn't organized in ways to directly engage with state actors. And frankly, part of the problem that Iran faces, and I would say the whole globe faces, is that we don't have many good, clear models of an alternative to this neoliberal capitalist model that is clearly failing not only Iranians and Egyptians and Tunisians and Turks and what have you, but also failing large numbers of Americans and Germans and Greeks and Latin Americans and so on and so forth. So part of the challenge we all have is that to remember Iranians are struggling in a world that we are also part of, and the challenges of an unaccountable government, 
the challenges of living in a world where many public assets have been redirected and diverted into private hands. These are all issues that are of concern to people around the world. We have seen in the past decade since the 2008 recession, and we don't have a very good blueprint of how to get out of this mess. Iranians, whether they're members of the government or not, they face their internal domestic challenges and contradictions, you know, the high expectations that people have of the government, but they also face the challenge of when they look beyond their borders, not only are there not many good models, but they see civil wars, massive destruction of societies, whether it's Syria, Yemen, Iraq, Afghanistan, and so on and so forth. It's a very, as many people have commented, we're living in dark times, and Iranians are similarly living in these dark times. When we talk about sanctions that are imposed on Iran, as, as difficult as they have been for the Iranian society and for the most susceptible or most vulnerable classes in the society, the argument that comes in terms of sanctions is almost as if, if we go to the times prior to sanctions, things will be okay. But when you look at the trajectory of the Iranian economy, there has been, as you said, the breach of the social contract and the tendency to pauperize the population as a whole. It seems to me the blueprint is not there, as you mentioned. Blueprint is not there. And the other challenge that specifically the Rouhani administration faces is that this economic model where the goal is to create a climate for investments, both domestic and international, is predicated on foreign governments and specifically the United States to allow this to happen. So in the coming days and weeks, one of the issues we also have to follow is what is the Trump administration going to do? Um, how are they going to respond to both the events inside Iran, as well as their tepid approval support for the nuclear agreement that the Obama administration signed on to and pushed through? At this moment, the Europeans have, however imperfectly, have Private companies and governments have engaged with Iran, have invested in Iran. But if the Trump administration decides that it wants to take punitive actions against Iran, one way it could do so is to actually put pressure on European governments as well as firms to stop investing and engaging within Iran. This is a real risk for the Iranian politicians to think through and calculate and will only worsen the already dire plights that Iranians are facing. Can you comment on the or tweets made by Mr. Trump and the statements by his administration? It's hard to discuss Donald Trump, you know, other than say that this is his attempt to show that he's, he's a man of action by tweeting. From my perspective, Donald Trump can't do very much, supports the protesters, these technological policies and so forth. From my perspective, probably won't do much one way or the other. But you know he does have uh, he does have the power to um, uh, destroy the nuclear deal and uh, undermine uh, the ability of um, uh, companies and governments to invest in Iran, sure. which would only uh, which only will deteriorate the situation and escalate um, uh, the conflict and the violence inside of Iran. Right? It would it would it would open the door to. Um, the, the, uh, the, the Revolutionary Guard and the um, judiciary to be even more draconian in their arrests. They're already arresting um, uh, hundreds of people. This would only escalate if they can point and say, look, the U.S. is, uh, is trying to overthrow the regime. 
So that Donald Trump's power is to be even more uh, is is there to is is there to be um, counterproductive um, rather than to actually be productive. Uh, they may try to level more sanctions against Iran. They may use this as a pretext, which no. is not going to help. Iran is trying to demand their rights. And then um, sanctions, as we know, and we have seen experiences of, in other countries such as Iraq, it only hurts the most vulnerable sectors of society and it, it destroys the social fabric of a society. The issue in the United States is that no politician's ever going to lose any votes for being critical of the Islamic Republic. So for Donald Trump or Democrats, for that matter, it's always easy to admonish the Islamic Republic, uh, and they will continue to do so because there's no real cost in doing this. At the same time, the U.S. government can't really do anything to concretely support these protesters, as far as I can see. There's very little that they can do. I, I don't know about technology of the internet and social media. Maybe there's some marginal things, but from my perspective, social media may have facilitated these protests, but they weren't essential components of these protests. But would they even want to support this protest? I think the U.S. government and many U.S. members of the U.S. establishment would like to appear like they're supporting the protests. You know, right, uh, right. They I just mean, want to see Iran weakened. So it brings up this other question. The Iranian regime has been boasting about the fact that they are the island of stability in a region that is engulfed in turmoil. Given that, and given their cooperation, if you like, or um, fighting a common enemy or common foe in Iraq between the United States and Iran, do you really think they would want to destabilize the regime in a way that it would create another chaos inside Iran? That's a good point. I'm sure in Washington and in, in the halls of power and think tanks, there are many people who would support, who would be, who would be cheering on these protesters, not because they may overthrow uh, the Islamic Republic, right. but they will keep the Islamic Republic contained. Uh, occupied, contained, internally vulnerable, and fragmented. Yeah. And, and, and in a sense, it plays into their hands. Of course, there are those who want regime change and so on and so forth, but I don't think that's really a viable option and would have massive uh, kind of popular support in the United States. In a sense, this scenario of a weakened, fractured Iran plays into the hands of, of kind of U.S. geostrategic interests. The yeah. regime has blamed, as usual, this is, has become normative, the regime has blamed outside powers for instigating the unrest in Iran. That sort of rhetoric, as I said, is consistent with how it had, has reacted in the past to protests in 1999 and 2009. This time, certain elements within the establishments have named the U.S., Israel, and Saudi Arabia as the countries behind what they call, quote-unquote, sedition. You know, this was a predictable reaction. Also, maybe noteworthy or unfortunate that some members of the reformist circles also even turned to foreign forces as, as an explanation for these protests in some cases. So there's also this somewhat peculiar case of the Telegram application accounts, Ahmad News, that has had virulent kind of anti-regime rhetoric and has been quite popular in Iran, has something in the order of a million followers. It was removed and a new one was recreated in its place. And some people are wondering who is behind this, what is behind this, what resources and so on and so forth. So 
you don't have to be a conspiracy theorist to actually wonder about the interests and actions of foreign governments when it comes to internal Iranian events. We have also been hearing for the past six years, since the crisis in Syria evolved into a civil war, there has been this fear uh, roaming around Iran that any serious attempt for a change from below that involves street politics and civil disobedience could lead the country down the path of civil war and disintegration. I mean, it may be reasonable for some ordinary Iranians to have such concerns, but uh, the fear has been systematically propagated and amplified by the ruling bloc inside Iran for the obvious reasons that no change means maintaining the status quo. This kind of a sentiment, this kind of fear, takes the agency away from the people in the streets. What do you make of those fears and those, that sort of a rhetoric? Yeah, so you're, you're absolutely right that the, the ruling bloc is very cynically used the specter of violence in Syria, a violence that they have actively participated and contributed to, but they've uh, used that as an argument for Iranians to remain quiet and remain supportive of the regime and so on and so forth, supportive of the IRGC, for instance, you know, the idea that the IRGC is fighting in Syria or in Iraq. The Revolutionary uh, Guards. Oh, yeah, the Revolutionary Guards is fighting in Syria and in Iraq, um, so that Iranians won't have to confront ISIS or, or, or mayhem inside their own country. This, this language has permeated the newspapers and the public sphere for, for almost a decade now. That, that's just pure cynical politics on the part of the establishment. I do suspect, however, that many ordinary Iranians are concerned that if Iran goes down a revolutionary path, the situation is such that it could very easily spiral into extreme bloodshed, civil war, and foreign countries intervening. For Iranians living in Iran, this is not far-fetched. They look to the east, they see Afghanistan. They look to the west, they see Iraq, they see Syria. They've seen the events in Yemen more recently. So again, for particular social strata, you know, middle-class uh, Iranians, the prospects of war is quite serious. And don't, let's not forget, these are, for many Iranians, they have experienced the tumultuous and painful experience of revolution, as well as eight years of war with Iraq. In a sense, Iranians, Iranian society has, has paid an enormous price for those events. So while the government may be using Syria in a manip manipulative fashion, I think we should be respectful of Iranians who may genuinely be concerned you know, of the different strategies one could use to improve one's life, improve one's, the government's performance, responsiveness, and so on and so forth. The issue is that there are multiple forms of politics available to Iranians, whether it's voting or not voting, trying to organize an association or a union, having wildcat protests in the streets, and so on and so forth. So for some Iranians who may be deeply critical of their government, they probably, you know, have a, a different appraisal of what pathways, or what strategies are better or not for getting what they actually want, which is a, a better life, a more representative, accountable, and just um, government. It is difficult, Arang, to see how a protest movement without unified leadership, effective organization, and clearly defined objectives can survive the Iranian regime's coercion. Uh, what do you think will happen? Also, what will be the significance of this protest in the struggle for social justice 
and democratic freedoms in the midterm and long term in Iran? For the short term, I, I suspect these protests will peter out. The, the lack of leadership, the lack of focus is a, a, a serious Achilles heel. The inability to date to build bridges to other segments of Iranian society and other parts of Iranian society that haven't taken the streets are a real issue. Of course, everything is quite fluid at this moment. There could be unexpected events and there could be continuation of these sorts of protests and a shift of these protests to other venues. And so for these protests to gain greater traction, they really do need to build alliances with a broader array of segments of Iranian society. And that, that's very difficult challenge in general, but especially under the deeply authoritarian context in which uh, these events are taking, taking place. However, if these protests do kind of peter out and die down, the point I've been trying to make is that the forces and the factors that have generated this form of anger on the part of many Iranian citizens, these factors have not gone away and are deeply complex and are deep uh, and profound challenges for Iran's polity to grapple with. So just even if next week there are no longer people on the streets, it doesn't mean that these issues will not deeply affect decision makers and policymakers um, in Tehran, as well as the way Iranians look at each other and the society that they live in. These protests are unexpected in terms of their scale but are deeply connected to both the legacies of the 1979 revolution, as well as a distinct pattern of social justice protests and demands of the past two decades. Aran Keshavarzian is an associate professor of Middle Eastern studies at New York University and the author of Bazaar and State in Iran, Politics of the Tehran Marketplace. He spoke with Shahram Aghamir from New York. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. That's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. To get in touch, you can call us at 510-848-6767, extension 632, email vomekpfa at yahoo.com, connect with us on our Facebook at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, or follow us on Vomina Radio. Please join us next time for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa.